Welcome to the Modern Federalist. Your compass in the world of politics, policy, and people. We're here to challenge norms, question narratives, and offer balanced insight on pressing issues. Your host, Charlton Allen, is a seasoned analyst and a staunch advocate for freedom. With his sharp intellect, he'll guide you through the maze of contemporary politics. Whether you're a political enthusiast or just a curious observer, you've found your haven. This is the Modern Federalist. Welcome to the revolution. The revolution. Welcome, friends, to another episode of The Modern Federalist. I'm your host, Charlton Allen, and we've got a packed show for you today. First up, we're going to dive into a topic that's close to home for many North Carolinians, school choice. We're honored to have North Carolina Senator Amy Gailey with us to discuss the North Carolina Opportunity Scholarships. This program is designed to give families in our state the financial flexibility to attend a private school if they wish. But this isn't just a conversation for North Carolinians. Citizens of other states with or considering similar programs will find this discussion enlightening. Moving on, we'll take a look at the state of the 2024 presidential race. The South Carolina Republican primary has just wrapped up with Donald Trump winning in a landslide over South Carolinian Nikki Haley. We'll break down what this means for the race moving forward. Finally, we'll discuss the 25th Amendment to the United States Constitution. This has become particularly relevant given the recent release of the Her Special Counsel Report, which decided against the prosecution of President Biden for mishandling and retention of classified documents. The report suggests that a jury would likely find Biden to be a sympathetic defendant with memory lapses. We'll delve into the implications of this finding, what it means for our understanding of the 25th Amendment. So settle up, friends, for another episode of The Modern Federalist. Let's ride. I'm thrilled to have Senator Amy Gailey as her special guest on this episode. Senator Gailey is a dedicated public servant with a wealth of experience in local and state government. She served as a county commissioner and is now a member of the North Carolina General Assembly. Senator Gailey has proven herself to be a passionate advocate for education, infrastructure, and economic development in the state of North Carolina. Today, we are honored to have Senator Gailey to join us for an informative discussion of the North Carolina Opportunity Scholarship Program. As a champion for education and a firm believer in providing opportunities for all students, Senator Gailey has been instrumental and promoting the Opportunity Scholarship Program to the citizens of the state, a program which aims to empower families with educational choices and opportunities. Through her advocacy for transparency, fiscal responsibility, and collaboration, Senator Gailey has worked tirelessly to ensure every child in the state of North Carolina has access to a quality education that meets their individual needs. We are excited to dive deeply into the details of the North Carolina Opportunity Scholarship Program with Senator Gailey and explore how this initiative is making a difference in the lives of students and families across the state. Without further ado, let's welcome Senator Amy Gailey to the show. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. So our pleasure. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your role in helping create the North Carolina Opportunity Scholarships? Of, of course, I've been a, a supporter of educational choice for a long time. You know, um, 
I think that all different kinds of opportunities for children to learn are very important to find that right fit for a child and for their family. So we saw that really a spotlight thrown on that through the virus and how families um, really were challenged to find the situation that would, would help their child to learn. Not everybody was made for online learning. Some students excelled with their online learning and some families found out that things that they didn't know that their child had been bullied at school and it was a relief not to have to go anymore. Other children just learned really well from a computer. And then some children suffered a lot from not being in a classroom environment and being isolated from their friends. And then you have the people in the community, you know, come from a disadvantaged background or some kind of stress in the family where those children really, really needed the structure of going to school. So that's a long way of saying that I, I think educational choice is very, very important. And opportunity scholarships are a big piece of that in North Carolina. And can you describe how the program works in North Carolina? Right. So not every product, there's three different kind of, or I guess four different kinds of structure of education, K-12 in North Carolina. There's the traditional K-12 public schools. There's charter schools, which are also public schools, but not within the traditional district form. There are private schools, and then there is homeschooling. So opportunity scholarships would give uh, families a, a voucher or an amount of money based on the number of people in their household and their household income. They get a grant of a certain amount of money to go to a private school. And so the family applies with, there's a state agency set up called the North Carolina State Education Assistance Authority, or SEAA. The family applies online with SEAA, and the application period is right now. And then the private school has to obviously accept the scholarship. And the money, I believe, is sent directly to the school and does not go through the family. And how do families go about applying for the scholarship? So they go onto the SEAA website, and then there's a, a you know, click through the process of, you know, obviously you have to turn in your financial information and things like that to make sure that you apply. There's a, obviously a residency requirement. You have to live in the state of North Carolina. And obviously you have to have a child who's kindergarten through 12th, up to 12th, or up to 12th grade, going to go into 12th grade the next year. So, And it has to be used for private schools. Does that include parochial or religious schools or is it strictly non-religious private schools? It can be any private school that accepts the opportunity scholarship. So some schools, I think, are reluctant to accept them because they think that they're going to get on the hook for the government money and then that the requirements will change and somehow they'll be beholden to the state government somehow. So not every private school accepts it. Also, the award doesn't necessarily cover the entire cost of the tuition. It depends on the family's income, as I said, and the number of people in the household. I believe the highest award that somebody can get for that, for the Opportunity Scholarship, is around $7,000. So, let's see, um, yeah, oh, almost $7,500. If you have less than $57,720 of income and you're a family of four, then you can get $7,468. Well, there are some special schools that um, serve special populations, and they can cost twenty twenty five thousand $25,000. 
or ten, twelve thousand dollars, I think is not unusual for a private school. So the family still has to come up with the balance of the money, but it really helps them with with having that opportunity. But you raised the question about um, whether or not we can use tax dollars with religious organizations and whether or not that's some kind of issue. Um, interestingly, interestingly, the United States Supreme Court addressed that in the 2002 case of Zellman versus Simmons-Harris. And it's very important that this program, the parents make the decision about where the child goes to school and who gets the government assistance. It's not the government making that decision. So the Supreme Court in that case found that the program was neutral with respect to religion and provided assistance directly to a broad class of citizens who gave the government aid to religious schools wholly as a result of their own genuine and independent private choice. And so that is why the money for the opportunity scholarships possibly going to religious schools is not a constitutional issue. That's exactly right uh, for our listeners. Uh, a church or a religious school has every right to participate in the public square, in this place, the educational marketplace, as any other institution. And it would be, in effect, discrimination if you said, well, these only are available for non-religious schools. That's right. People forget that the Constitution says not only can government not advance religion, it also can't... In- um, interfere with it either. So, you know, this is, uh, if there's a, if there is an advance of a religious mission or perceived endorsement of a religious message with opportunity scholarships, it's, it's attributed, attributable to the individual, the family making that decision and not to the government. The government's role ends when the money's paid out. That's a very good point. How does this program compare to vouchers and other similar programs in other states in the union? I think that school choice is something that's really growing. There's been a lot of interest in the programs in Arizona where they have more of a backpack model where students can can go, you know, essentially the amount of money that the state budgets for that individual student, and they can take it anywhere. That's not quite what we have in North Carolina. And we have a lot more students, a lot more population than Arizona does. So we're working toward a backpack model similar to that. But we also have the teacher allotment and other quirks in our school finance laws that make it hard to implement that. One thing that is interesting about the school choice movement is it got a big boost after Hurricane Katrina. Actually, the education system was destroyed in New Orleans after Katrina. And they went heavily toward a voucher-based system to kind of get the children back in school and recover from the hurricane. And it turned out to be very, very successful. And they've continued to do that since then, I believe. Can you explain the tier system? It's my understanding there are four tiers here in North Carolina. And I believe tier one is designed and set up for those with lower income. And tier four is the higher income. Can you explain how that all works? Yeah, I'd be happy to. You're right. There are four tiers, and they're based on the family's income as a percentage of the federal free and reduced lunch eligibility income limits. And so, for example, if it's a family of four, the first tier is if the family has less than $57,720 of income. That's based on the free and reduced lunch eligibility for a family of four. 
if that's their income, then they get the full amount of the scholarship, $7,458. Then if they're between about $58,000 and $115,000, then they get less. They get $6,722 $6, and then between one hundred fifteen and about $250,000, then it goes down more to $4,480. And then over two hundred fifty dollars or closer to $260,000, then they get $3,360. So $3,360 really isn't going to make or break a lot of families that, are, that have a family income of over $260,000. But I think it's an important policy decision to say that, yes, everybody should get some kind of assistance. An opportunity, school choices for everybody. There has been, at least from what I understand within North Carolina, there has been some uh, concern that there's not going to be enough money within the program for those in Tier 4. Is that correct? Well, there, are, there the program is extremely successful right now, and there has been such a incredible response from the people of North Carolina applying to SEAA for the Opportunity Scholarships this year, that it's in the first day, they had done almost double the number of applications that they had received for the whole month last year. So yes, people are concerned about that. I think that the General Assembly is very committed to Opportunity Scholarships and to making sure that those resources are available and that people have school choice. So I don't know, know this for a fact, don't take this to the bank, but I believe that if there is the revenue is available, you know, it depends on the economy and if there's a surplus in the state budget, if the revenue is available, I think that we'll see our leaders and the General Assembly doing everything that we can to make sure those resources are available for the people who want them. If from my vantage point, even if you have heard that, it's probably important to apply if you're otherwise eligible, because then at least the leaders in the legislative branch will know this is what the potential demand is. Is that correct? Yes, I definitely agree with that. I am told, I talked to Mary Shooping, is the government liaison for SCAA, and she told me that there is no advantage in applying early or applying late. That People who applied at 12.01 on February 1st didn't have any more advantage than somebody who applies on February 29th. So families can be reassured that if they haven't done it yet, then they can still get into the into the mix. But it is important to go ahead and do it. Let's talk a little bit about what are the benefits of the program for students in particular. A lot of times, uh, you know, everything gets lost in the shuffle of these programs and public school, charter schools, private schools. What are the um, potential benefits for students to be able to attend a private school? Right. So the benefits for children to be able to attend a private school really depend on the needs of the family. I mean, traditional K-12 can be really a great fit for a lot of people, especially if you live in a community where, you know, grandparents, parents went to the same school. That happens a lot across the state of North Carolina. And and people all grew up together. You go to church together. You have a real feeling of community. And that's awesome. But then there are other children who have different needs. So we also have a program in um, North Carolina called ESA Plus, or Education Students Accounts, for students with disabilities. 
So those can be combined with opportunity scholarships to use for tuition and fees for private school, as well as other expenses for students with disabilities like speech therapy, tutoring services, and educational technology. And that award can be between $9,000 to $17,000 a year, depending on the services that the student needs. Um, and homeschoolers, interestingly, can receive that as well. So opportunity scholarships in private education and school choice give these families the, the chance to find the services, to find the niche that really will help their child. You know, we know, we know that autistic students, for example, have a lot of needs for interventions and therapies um, to help, you know, work with their brain while it's still malleable and while they can still um, can learn and adapt and get those skills that they're going to need into adulthood. So not every traditional K-12 school is well-equipped to deal with you know, those kinds of students. They should be, they're supposed to be, but there might be a mismatch, not a good fit with a particular student or particular family. Also, this past week, I was really interested to visit a school called the Emerald School down in Charlotte. And their special mission is to, it's a private school and they take opportunity scholarships. Their mission is to work with teenagers who are in recovery. So these are addicted teenagers who have gone through rehab and who are ready to be in recovery. And we know that, you know, for addicts of all ages, that if they return to their, the place where they used drugs or alcohol, then it can, they can slip really easily back into their old patterns. And so these teenagers go to this school where everybody has been through the same general issue and they can get services, they get remediation, and, and it really helps them. So the cost of going to the Emerald School is much higher than the Opportunity Scholarship, but it makes a big dent into that. So that's an example of the kind of reason that school choice is important so that those families can find the niche or the, the area that fits their students so they can get the help that they need. One of the criticisms that has been put out there by those who oppose school choice and other programs where money follows the student is that it can result in less money allocated for traditional public schools. Is that a fair criticism? In my mind, it's not in the state of North Carolina because our traditional public schools have more money than they've ever had before. In 2024, our traditional public schools, even with opportunity scholarships, have more money and more resources from the state of North Carolina than they've ever had. And truthfully, the students aren't there. If the student's not there, why do you need the funds to teach the children who are remaining? Also, clearly, it's obviously a big benefit to counties that in North Carolina have the obligation to provide the capital facilities. And so these are students not being there. So you have more space for the students who are there and you're not going to have to build as many new buildings, new schools to absorb the increase in our population in, in North Carolina. So I think that really the resistance to opportunity scholarships in North Carolina is really about keeping my personal opinion, the middle class trapped in traditional K-12 schools. Like I was saying, the tier for the family of four between 115 
$5,000, $260,000, them getting that $4,480 for each of their two children, that can really help them. That's, that's an income level that they could really help them be able to afford to put their child in a private school. And that's, you know, 115 to 260, that's really two middle-class people married to each other, a two-income family where you have maybe a, a police officer married to a nurse, or you could have two county employees, you know, somebody who works for the, the public health and somebody who works in the detention center, a corrections officer, you know, two state employees. That's really the sweet spot for the solid middle class. And I think that a lot of our concern from our friends on the left who are opposed to opportunity scholarships is less really about the money that's not going to be in the schools as it is about the children that aren't going to be in the schools. They don't want to lose the middle class, but their own policies have pushed the middle class out of traditional K-12 education. It's a very good point. The policies have alienated many of the traditional middle class. And the reality is it, it is hard in North Carolina today in Raleigh and the Raleigh area, the Charlotte area, $115,000 doesn't go far these days. When it really doesn't. Cost of living it has just dramatically increased, especially the past several years. Are there any plans in the future to try to increase funding or expand the program? I believe that as uh, the economy in North Carolina develops, just like we'll continue to invest in traditional K-12 public education and continue to invest in charter schools, I think we'll continue to invest in opportunity scholarships. One thing that I really, Charlton, that I really did think interesting, when you can, some people criticize school choice and saying that it promotes segregation, that it's, you know, white families not wanting to have their children go to school with black families. But if you look at the, for the school year 23-24, so the one that we're in now, 64% of the recipients of the Opportunity Scholarships were white, 19% were black, and 11% were two or more races. For the 2020 census for North Carolina, it's about 61.6% white, 12.4% black, and uh, two or more races, 10.2%. So the people who are getting the opportunity scholarships really tracks pretty closely, you know, not perfectly, but pretty closely with the general racial demographic of the state of North Carolina. And I think that that really points to the fact that people are not making their choices based on discriminatory factors. They're making it really on what's best for their individual child and the, looking at the landscape of education choices that are available. Those are interesting statistics, and it, it really begs the question just how ill-informed those who lobby against schools of choice are and how that argument is not a very strong one when it's actually tracking population demographics. Yeah, it's really true. And the same, I think, is true for charter schools that I think actually the, the the percentage of black families that are choosing charter schools is even higher. That um, there are some charter schools that have been very successful at working with students in majority black neighborhoods. And I think that my understanding is that polling with the black community it shows that school choice is very, very popular with them because they've really seen on a 
grassroots personal level, how it's really been a positive thing for their own family. Is there anything else you would like to add or share with our listeners today? One thing that I think is interesting is that we have really seen a lot of innovation in the traditional K-12 space in the last 10 years in North Carolina. And I think it's really been response to families having options. We can't just evaluate opportunity scholarships and their impact without thinking about and seeing what they have done for our students within the private school world without thinking about if we did not have them, if we had never implemented cho- school choice in the state of North Carolina, what would it, what would our traditional K-12 look like? You know, now we have magnet schools, we have special programs in um, our community schools like uh, STEM schools, we have language immersion programs, we have special arts programs within our traditional K-12 community schools. They've also formed partnerships with our community colleges. So there can be an early college high school through a partnership with the community college. So I think that none of those things would exist if we didn't have that dynamic of competition for students and just absolute requirement that if traditional K-12 is going to survive at all, it's going to have to Think about what works best for families. What do families want? Anything else? Well, we didn't talk about the accountability piece. Um, Let's talk about that. That, 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 That's important. Can you explain some of the accountability measures that uh, the General Assembly has embedded within uh, the Opportunity Scholarship model? Yeah, so the ultimate judge of accountability for any kind of educational choice is the parents. The parents determine whether that's a good fit, not a bureaucracy. I don't think that we need to be empowering the bureaucracy of the state of North Carolina to examine public schools and sort of look over families' shoulders and decide for them, okay, we see that this is actually, you think this is a good fit for your child, but we in our office here with our computer and our window that looks out on the street, we have decided that you don't know what you're doing and we're going to second guess you and impose our own judgment. I think that's ridiculous. The parents can decide whether or not that private school is a good fit. And if it's not, then they'll find a different option the next year. So in addition to that, the 2023 state budget did include a new provision that a school accepting opportunity scholarships are going to have to administer a common nationally standardized test. Most reputable private schools that I know of already do this. They aren't, because parents want to know. They want to know, how is my child doing relative to other children around the country and around their state and their community? And so most private schools are already giving a common nationally standardized test. But the superintendent of public instruction, Catherine Truitt, she's going to choose a test that is going to be used. And she's not allowed, though, to choose the North Carolina-specific test, the EOGs, or another one like the public schools used, it has to be a common nationally standardized test. So I know that the private school community is really concerned about that. They already give their own test. They don't particularly want to have to give a second one or switch their tests, but I'm sure they'll figure that out and, and decide the best thing for them. But there is an accountability. There's, so there's two parts to the accountability piece. There's one, this new testing requirement it's really an, there was already a testing requirement. This is kind of nailing it down a little bit. And then 
For two, there's the parents and that uh, parent making the decision about whether or not it's appropriate. The, the school is the best fit. Also, you know, we see that the traditional K-12 schools, they do their own testing and people complain about that plenty, about how they shouldn't, have, the school shouldn't be evaluated based on a test and based strictly on student so-called achievement. They want the growth factor modeled into that and actually SIP, Superintendent Truett's been working a lot on a whole nother anal- uh, evaluation of uh, educational quality that includes a lot of other factors too. That hasn't been uh, completely firmed up yet but so it's a little ironic to hear traditional public school champions wanting to impose the testing requirement on private schools when they find it so much in its application when it comes to their own schools interesting point well thank you senator gailey so much for your time and insights and uh, it's great having you on the program today well thanks for having me As we wrap up our discussion of the North Carolina Opportunity Scholarship Program, I would encourage all parents with children who wish to participate to apply before the March 1st, 2024 deadline. Despite the proven benefits of the Opportunity Scholarship Program in this state, it has come under fire from what some would characterize as an unexpected source. Governor Roy Cooper has used his platform to try to undermine this vital initiative just as parents are applying to participate. This is a troubling development, especially considering opportunity scholarships are the law of the land in North Carolina. As the chief executive of this state, Governor Cooper's primary responsibility is to faithfully execute the laws of the state, not to undermine them. Unfortunately, this behavior may not come as a surprise to those of us who are familiar with Governor Cooper's track record of politicizing his office rather than focusing on his duties. Having served as a public servant in North Carolina, I can attest to the astonishing level of political maneuvering that has characterized Governor Cooper's tenure. It's disheartening to see a program as beneficial as the Opportunity Scholarship Program being caught in the crossfire of a political agenda. Some supporters of Governor Cooper may argue that his partisan stance is appropriate as the leader of his party in a divided state. However, here's the catch. The legislature is not currently in session. Governor Cooper's calls for a moratorium on a law are wildly inappropriate. Fortunately, the administration of the North Carolina Opportunity Scholarship Program is not under Governor Cooper's direct control. This means that the positive impact of this program can continue to benefit low-income students and their families, despite political challenges. The Opportunity Scholarship Program along with similar initiatives across our nation, serve as powerful catalysts for expanding educational access and fostering genuine equity for all. Rather than erecting political barriers or engaging in empty rhetoric, our focus should pivot towards creating profound, enduring impacts on the lives of those who stand to benefit most from increased educational opportunities. After all, the goal is not to limit but to liberate the potential within each individual through the power of education. From the cobblestone streets of Boston to the hallowed halls of independence, this is The Modern Federalist. Always want a bad boy, they make me feel good. 
This segment, I wanted to jump into what I see as the strategic crossroads facing former President Donald Trump as he charts his course in the 2024 presidential primaries amidst a landscape of shifting dynamics. In the realm of Republican contenders, Trump continues to boat race his opponents, notably leaving Nikki Haley trailing in his wake, despite her declaration of staying in the race through Super Tuesday. This implies that an expiration date looms on the horizon for Haley's campaign, signaling an acknowledgement that the race is effectively over. Both Haley and Trump are keenly aware of this reality, with Trump needing to avoid, in my view, alienating voters in Haley's camp to secure their crucial support in the future. Simultaneously on the Democrat front, Joe Biden maintains his strong position for renomination, with his cognitive abilities notwithstanding as the frontrunner. The only potential hurdle remaining for Biden's nomination is his health, which could significantly impact the dynamics of the race as it unfolds. While Trump leads most polling over Biden, particularly in swing states, his polling seems to top off about the 45% mark. To secure victory, I believe Trump must consolidate and grow his base, necessitating a strategic approach that goes beyond a base election strategy. If this election is a base election, Trump will have a path to victory, but it will be a narrow one in my view. The challenge for Trump lies in balancing his catawampus style with a strategic approach that appeals to a wider spectrum of voters, including those presently in Haley's camp. As Trump navigates the complexities of this 2024 election, he stands at a pivotal juncture where strategic decisions will shape the trajectory of his campaign. The need to pivot toward engaging a broader base of support, articulating a forward-looking vision for a second administration, and avoiding, in my view, pointless rhetoric that could alienate potential allies is paramount for Trump's success in the upcoming election. All that said, Trump remains Trump. He is a unique candidate and a unique character, and he is going to do things his own way. Welcome back as we jump into one of the most consequential discussions of our time. This segment surrounds Special Counsel Robert Hur's report on President Biden and his willful retention and mishandling of classified documents, a sticky web of memory lapses that makes one cognizant of the fragility of the man who leads us. So where does one turn in a situation where the country's highest office holder may be compromised? Intriguingly, the 25th Amendment to the United States Constitution might just hold some answers. Crafted to outline procedures for a president's removal from office for various reasons, including incapacity, is underestimated and misunderstood by many, yet it might just be the lifeline our country needs in the current situation or a future predicament. In a perfect world, Section 3 of this amendment posits that the president, recognizing his own incapacity, delivers a written declaration of such to Congress, thereby ceding control to the vice president. But a candid self-examination from Mr. Biden granting the reins to Vice President Harris seems unlikely given the circumstances. Enter Section 4. This overlooked clause kicks into gear when a president, seemingly incapable, shows no signs of stepping down voluntarily. Could there be a time for the vice president and the majority of the cabinet to step up to the plate under these circumstances? If they deem it necessary, they can send a written notice to Congress about the president's inability, thereby invoking the vice president as the acting head of the executive branch. 
We are sailing through troubled waters, folks, arguably on a ship without a steadfast captain. It's an age where we need a leader capable of bearing the weight of the world, quite literally, navigating the labyrinth of global politics, protecting our nation's security and interest, handling the responsibilities of arguably the world's toughest job is no easy feat under the best of circumstances. Is it time to invoke the 25th Amendment? Or will that time come in the very near future? Can the Constitution provide the answers to our current situation or future turmoil? As always, we will keep the conversation rolling and the perspectives flowing. Tune in for future episodes as we continue to unpack this extraordinary situation in our nation's history. The revolution continues in three, two, one. This is the Modern Federalist. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Modern Federalist Podcast. We've had a rich and enlightening discussion today, and we're particularly grateful to Senator Amy Gailey for sharing her insights with us. To our listeners, thank you for tuning in. Your support is what keeps us going. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends, subscribe to our podcast, and don't forget to rate us. Your feedback helps us bring you more of the content you love. Before I sign off, I'd like to address a recent controversy that has come to light. A segment on MSNBC equated the belief in rights endowed by our creator with Christian nationalism. To correct this misguided notion, I leave you with these words. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. These are the words of our Declaration of Independence, and they are the spark that ignited the dynamic republic we cherish today. If anyone on MSNBC wishes to marginalize and misrepresent these foundational concepts, perhaps their commentary would be better suited for a new and different platform, say MSPRC. Remember, these words are not just a statement of belief, but a commitment to the inherent dignity and equality of all individuals in our nation. They are the foundation of our republic, and they resonate with the same power and truth today as they did over two centuries ago. Thank you once again for joining us on the Modern Federalist Podcast. Stay informed, stay engaged, and most importantly, stay true to the principles that make us who we are. Until next time. This is Charlton Allen signing off. Thanks for tuning in to The Modern Federalist. Don't forget to subscribe for more thought-provoking episodes. Until next time.